the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to hear our interview of the week with Jack Eason, The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. Great conversation. I think you'll appreciate. As I mentioned, we're also going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. So in addition to headlines, we're going to take a look at something that I'm hoping will put a little smile on your face. But first, the news. President Trump's election challenge remains pretty much a long shot, legal experts say, but five additional states announced on Thursday that they not only support a Texas lawsuit to overturn key Joe Biden battleground victories and hand them to President Trump, but they want to become parties to the suit themselves and take their own case to the Supreme Court to represent the interests of their own citizens. So Missouri and five additional states. Well, the states include Utah, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Arkansas, and of course, Missouri. Well, the states also said they backed the argument so far made to the count to the court rather by Texas and the Trump 2020 campaign, which have argued that not only are the actions taken by Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan unconstitutional, but they also open up the potential for widespread voter fraud. All the unconstitutional changes to election procedures identified in the bill of complaint have two common features. One, they abrogated statutory safeguards against fraud that responsible observers have long recommended for voting by mail. And two, they did so in a way that predictably conferred partisan advantage on one candidate in the presidential election. That's the Missouri brief from Wednesday, which was joined by 16 other states. Well, Pennsylvania is accusing Texas of trying to decimate the electorate, and Vice President Pence says President Trump deserves his day at the Supreme Court. But, of course, the Supreme Court itself will decide whether or not he has that day in court. Well, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have been named Time Magazine's Person Singular of the Year. I pause because I'm trying to figure out on what grounds that determination was made. Well, Time Magazine announced late Thursday that it named President-elect, or I suppose presumed President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris as its person, singular, of the year in a profile that was fiercely critical of President Trump. So when contrasting the two of them who have yet to accomplish anything in their soon-to-be office, um, in contrast to President Trump, they were named plural, the person singular of the year. Charlotte Alter, the author of the piece, wrote that Biden's pledged pledge, mind you, to restore the soul of the nation felt like an antiquated hokum at a moment when Hurricane Trump was tearing through America, ripping through institutions, chewing up norms and spitting them out, end quote. Well, the picks were likely uh, embraced by Democrats who see the pair as a return to normal in Washington. It certainly is that. We're going back to the Obama era, but criticized by Trump supporters who will likely see the move as another sign that the Biden administration will benefit from a friendly media, something we have not seen in four years. Uh, I fully expect the Nobel Peace Prize uh, will be extended to the pair of them as well. 
Well, Biden's pick to head the Veterans Affairs is sparking some backlash. And Hunter Biden has raised new stakes for senior Biden's attorney general pick. And AOC is knocking Biden's agenda as, in quotes, little hazy. Well, the St. Louis Circuit attorney is off the McCluskey gun case after using that case for fundraising. Well, the circuit attorney for the city of St. Louis has been disqualified from prosecuting Mark and Patricia McCloskey. That's the couple uh, facing felony charges for defending their home with weapons when protesters marched through their neighborhood in June, according to reports. This was in a gated community. The content of some campaign fundraising emails by the circuit attorney, Kim Gardner, infringed on the McCloskey's right to receive a fair trial. The circuit court judge, Clark uh, Thomas Clark II, ruled on Thursday, according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Well, in Minneapolis, police union there, uh, the head of the union blasted the city over cuts to the police department. And the average U.S. homeowner saw equity increase last year by $17,000. More than 100 House Republicans have signed on to the Texas suit filed in the Supreme Court. And six states have formally joined the lawsuit against Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, in addition to the 17 who had already uh, written support for that effort. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris jointly named Time Magazine's Persons of the Year and a Nobel Peace Prize most assuredly being prepared a la Barack Obama. Nancy Pelosi invariably defends Eric Swalwell after his uh, ties to a Chinese spy are revealed and the Department of Education is launching a free speech hotline. Keith Koffler rightly observes, well, that phone line will go dead the minute the Biden people get there because they don't believe in free speech. On the other hand, pulling the plug will also be a bad PR look, which was probably the administration's point in implementing it in the last uh, moments of the game. Well, Democrat Representative Tulsi Gabbard has introduced a born alive bill. Gabbard and Mark Wayne Mullen introduced a bill that would allow only biological females in women's sports. And a CNN anchor ironically touted a $380 fact first cashmere sweater after the network spiked the Hunter Biden story during the campaign. And by the way, they're suddenly interested. Campaign winner has been selected, sort of. Well, prisoners are to get the first crack at the vaccine under Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker's plan. And inmates and the homeless will also be among the first to receive the vaccine in Washington, D.C. California's Health and Human Services Secretary admits outdoor dining. Uh, the ban is about control and not science, at least an honest politician. Israel and Morocco agreed to normalize relations in the latest U.S. broker deal. You probably didn't read a thing about it. Unemployment claims jumped 853,000, a 137,000 week-over-week increase. And homeowners are $1 trillion richer thanks to the pandemic-driven housing boom. MasterCard and Visa finally stop allowing their cards to be used on Pornhub. Congratulations, they've come to their senses. Former President Obama is blaming Fox News and Rush Limbaugh for destroying the connection he had with conservatives. I didn't realize he had a connection with conservatives, but apparently Fox News and Rush Limbaugh destroyed it. And the Portland Autonomous Zone is stockpiling weapons, according to police. Vanderbilt women's basketball team say they're going to stay in their locker room during the national anthem for the rest of the season. Apparently, they just can't take the tune. Journalism, y'all. Biden will have the White House disinfected after Trump leaves. That's an actual story on the Hill. And then there's this. Operations are uh, more likely to go wrong if the surgeon is celebrating a birthday. You might want to ask. Melinda Gates is incredibly disappointed that, Amer that uh, American President Trump put Americans first for the vaccine. 
let me get this again. So Melinda Gates, an American, is incredibly disappointed that American President Trump put Americans first for the vaccine. Non-copus mentis, Ben and Jerry's has created a Colin or Colin Kaepernick-inspired ice cream flavor. And Bin Laden's ex-henchman has been freed from prison after a judge deems him too fat for jail. Sounds like an escape plan to me. If I'm ever caught, I'm putting on weight. Specially trained dogs can detect people who are infected with COVID-19 just by sniffing their armpits. No dog has yet volunteered for the gig, and you kind of wonder, how did they find this out? I mean, what was that test like? Well, this day in history, 1910, inventor George Claude, he publicly displays his first neon lamp consisting of two 38-foot-long tubes at the Paris Expo. And the rest, of course, is history. This day in history, 1936, Britain's King Edward VIII abdicates the throne so he can marry American divorcee Wallace Warfield Simpson. His brother, Prince Albert, becomes King George VI. 1937, Italy withdraws from the League of Nations. Four years later, in 1941, Germany and Italy declare war on the United States. The U.S. responds in kind. On this day in history, 1961, a U.S. aircraft carrier transporting Army helicopters arrives in Saigon, the first direct American military support for South Vietnam's battle against communist guerrillas. 1972, Apollo 17's lunar module lands on the moon with astronauts Eugene uh, Cernan and Harris, uh, Harrison Schmidt aboard. They become the last two men to date to step onto the lunar surface. 1997, more than 150 countries agree at a global warming conference in Kyoto, Japan, to control the Earth's greenhouse gases. 2001, the first criminal indictment stemming from 9-11, federal prosecutors charged Zakarias Moussaoui, a French citizen of Moroccan descent, with conspiring to murder thousands in the suicide hijackings. Moussaoui would plead guilty to conspiracy in 2005 and to serving a life sentence in prison. 2008, former NASDAQ chairman Bernie Madoff is arrested, accused of running a multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme that destroyed thousands of people's lives, savings, and wrecked charities. Madoff is serving a 150-year federal prison sentence. 2013, Time Magazine selects Pope Francis as its Person of the Year, saying the Roman Catholic Church's new leader, the first from Latin America, changed the perception of the 2,000-year-old institution in an extraordinary way in a short time. And short time certainly applies to his papacy. 2019, teen climate change activist Greta Thunberg is named Time Magazine Person of the Year. I wonder that all of those frontline medical workers who have been standing in harm's way to to um, protect and provide medical care for those with COVID-19, they didn't make the list. Um, Big Pharma that was responsible for a COVID-19 vaccination uh, that's going to be available to people in this country and abroad in a matter of days, they didn't make the list. But two politicians, one who served for about 50 years and the other, the most liberal member of the U.S. Senate, haven't even sworn in. There's not been an inauguration and they were chosen the person singular, the two of them of the year. I guess I just don't get it. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, also sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820 The Word. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle, KGNW 820 The Word.
Well, a U.S. Food and Drug Administration advisory panel voted on Thursday to endorse the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine, clearing the way for FDA leaders to authorize emergency mass distribution and an ongoing surge of COVID-19 cases across the country. The vote was 17 to 4. One committee member abstained. Well, the committee was charged with voting on the following questions. Based on the totality of scientific evidence available, do the benefits of the Pfizer, uh, the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine outweigh its risks for use in individuals 16 years of age and older? Well, several committee members took issue with the aspect of approving the vaccine for just 16 and 17-year-olds due to the limited uh, evidence. Others argued that the 16 and 17-year-olds wouldn't be among the first to receive the vaccine, allowing for time to research the effects it may have on this age group. Well, the highly anticipated meeting included members of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research Advisory Committee, outside vaccine experts, and Pfizer representatives. Albeit significant, it's important to note that the committee's vote in favor of the EUA is not final. The vote now has to be reviewed by the officials with the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, which will confirm the decision or otherwise reject it. A similar process ensued after a panel of independent experts advising the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention voted last week that healthcare workers and residents of long-term care facilities will be the first to receive the long-awaited coronavirus vaccine. That decision required approval from CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield. Well, if the FDA officially approves the vaccine, solidifying the committee's vote, the U.S. will follow behind Canada, the United Kingdom, and Bahrain to approve the emergency use of the Pfizer BioNTech jab. Well, the vaccine provides um, 95% effective uh, effectiveness, I should say, in late-stage clinical trials. The companies announced late last month Pfizer and BioNTech were the first to apply for the emergency use authorization from the FDA. Another efficacious vaccine candidate developed by Moderna followed suit, becoming the latest contender to file for EUA. Well, the FDA vote uh, to approve the companies um, is expected with documents posted ahead of the agency's scheduled December 10th meeting showing that the candidates met the FDA's requirements for emergency use. Well, the documents uh, didn't flag any new concerns or safety issues regarding the vaccine after reviewing the submitted data. And the agency found no specific safety concerns among subgroup analysis Uh, but did list several unknowns that will need to be investigated further, including duration of immunity, efficacy in certain high-risk populations, those previously infected, as well as effectiveness among asymptomatic infection, long-term effects of COVID-19 disease, mortality and transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Fatigue, headache, muscle pain, chills, joint pain, and fever were all listed as reported adverse reactions, but were categorized as mild to moderate Serious adverse events remained uncommon and represented medical events that occur in the general population at similar frequency as observed in the study. Well, that said, in the UK, and I mentioned it yesterday, at least two adverse reactions occurred on the first day of the the country's mass vaccination program that started this week, leading regulators in that country to advise that people who have significant history of allergic reactions should avoid receiving the new Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine at this time. Well, more than three dozen states and an assorted assortment rather of lawmakers and third parties filed a flurry of briefs on December 10th, picking sides in a legal battle over whether the Supreme Court should consider a lawsuit brought by Texas that alleges that Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan and Wisconsin conducted their elections in violation 
of the U.S. Constitution. Well, 20 Democratic attorneys general filed a brief on December 10th in support of the defendants. A day earlier, 18 Republican attorneys general backed the Lone Star State. Republican Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost backed neither uh, party and opposed the relief sought by Texas, namely that the Supreme Court should toss out the election results in the four contested states and order their state legislatures to pick electors in accordance with the Constitution. The four defendant states and the 20 Democratic AGs constitute all but one of the Democratic attorneys general in the United States. Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller was the only Democrat who didn't join the lawsuit as of the evening of December 10th. Georgia has a Republican attorney general. On the Republican side, attorneys general representing five states didn't take uh, action on the case. Idaho, Alaska, Wyoming, New Hampshire, and Kentucky. The governor of Alaska said his state's attorney general didn't have enough time to review the lawsuit before the deadline to join the case. I'll be the first to admit that I am disappointed that we didn't have enough time to thoroughly review the details. Had this not been the case, we may have come to a different decision. That's a quote from Governor Mike Dunleavy in a statement emailed to uh, the media. My understanding is that the Supreme Court will make a quick decision prior to the uh, December 14th. Uh, Depending on the outcome, Alaska will respond accordingly. Idaho's Attorney General Lawrence Wasden said that he won't be participating in the case, citing concerns about counter litigation. Texas sued the four battleground states on December 8th, alleging the officials there conducted the 2020 general election in violation of the Constitution. And they make a pretty strong, detailed case. The lawsuit alleges that the defendant states um, illegally altered election laws, causing a flood of mail-in votes after removing ballot integrity measures. The resulting irregularities put the ultimate outcome of the election in doubt, the Lone Star State claims. And now, as you've heard, Others are joining in that effort. Let's see here. What to expect as the Electoral College meets on Monday to cast votes. Now, the 14th, that's the day that the Electoral College meets. They cast their ballots and the winner of the election is made certain. Now, the Supreme Court will have to make some decision about these lawsuits, and that will determine whether or not the Electoral College is seated, whether or not they're seated, um, uh, cast their ballots, and then that's challenged. So it's it, things are still up in the air. As we've mentioned earlier, the Supreme Court is less likely than one might imagine, even if there are merits to the case. And I believe there are merits to the charges brought by uh, Texas, but they're they're unlikely to overturn an election. Now, the issues that are raised must be addressed in some context, because if they uh, fail to insist that that be the case, um, then officials can simply change election law on a whim. They can make decisions that are partisan, um, and uh, that, of course, will undermine the integrity of our election. So at some point, these issues have to be addressed. Whether or not the Supreme Court decides to take this up at this time as a matter in determining the outcome of the November 2020 election remains to be seen, but a decision is expected before the 14th when the Electoral College is scheduled Uh, to meet. Um, The Constitution gives the electors the power to choose the president, and when all the votes are counted on Monday, President-elect Joe Biden is expected to have 306 electoral votes, more than 270 uh, than the 270 that are needed to elect a president, to 232 votes for President Donald Trump. So stay on the edge of your seats. Some uh, specifics will be known before Monday.
Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. Up next, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. Uh, also later in the program, we'll hear from Jack Eason. He's the author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World in our interview of the week. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm also sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. My last day, in fact, so it's been nice hanging out with you. We're going to take the next couple of segments to take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. And I'd like to begin um, first by introducing James Blend, my producer, who joins me on these segments on Friday. So welcome, James. This one wasn't voluntary, was it? This was They're still, they're still mandatory, right? Yes, they are mandatory, but we pretend that you're volunteering. Gotcha. Okay. Got it. Okay. 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 I like to start with a segment that I call it could be worse. And while things in Washington are not settled, we had an election. It's come and gone. Things are not settled. The two sides have um, seemed to have moved further away from each other. They're not settled. It could be worse. Lawmakers in Taiwan got into a fist fight and threw pig guts at each other on Friday over a soon to be enacted policy that would allow imports of U.S. pork and beef. It could be worse. Lawmakers are not uh, throwing meat at one another, uh, at least not yet. So we should be grateful. Right, James? Aren't they kind of always throwing around pork in Congress, though? Well, they're certainly, they're certainly <laughs> voting on pork. <laughs> There's lots of that. But, you know, it could be worse. They could literally be throwing pork. Uh, I want to see video. That's all I can think of is I want to see video. Please tell me C-SPAN was there. <laughs> politicians doing physically what they do all, oftentimes in terms of policy. Well, the COVID vaccine is on the move in the UK. They started earlier this week and William Shakespeare received a COVID-19 vaccination. Yes, you heard me correctly. William Shakespeare from Warwickshire in England was one of the first people to receive the newly approved COVID-19 vaccine outside a clinic trial. In, uh, on Tuesday, the 81-year-old had the injection at the University Hospital of Coventry on Tuesday, about 20 miles from Stratford up upon Avon. Well, it's kind of hard to figure these out, but it's the birthplace of his namesake, England's greatest dramatist and poet, William Shakespeare. Well, Shakespeare's shot inspired Twitter users who joked, the taming of the flu, the two gentlemen of Corona, uh, some asked if Margaret Keenan was um, a patient, 1A, then was Shakespeare patient 2B or not 2B? Dun, dun, dun. Well, I thought it was pretty clever. Anyway, William Shakespeare. You know, it's it's funny. They talk about, you know, with the vaccine coming out now and starting to make its way around the United States, even though the approval is still, you know, final approval is still forthcoming. Um, I was reading the other day that, uh, you know, that uh, – the doses are on their way to the northwest and i kind of can't help but wonder if um you know they're kind of like us and the government uh when, when they're waiting for something are, the, are they checking tracking every five minutes because if they are they're going to find that they're you know the the vaccines go to some very strange places i mean i don't know if you've ever noticed it. it's like it was like now why did it go to missouri when it was coming from california hmm <laughs> Yeah, so how many misdirects? I had I had a package the other day go from uh, Houston, Texas, to the Portland area, up to Kent, Washington, and then back to the Portland area for delivery. 
that's wow. it got the, the full ready. Well, yeah, exactly. So if that's how we're going to get the vaccine, settle in, folks. It's going to be a long winter. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like that might be the case. Well, 20 percent of Americans have reportedly gotten hurt while setting up their Christmas trees in 2020. That's according to a new survey. Uh, you better watch out doesn't just apply to the poem but or the song. Christmas tree-related injuries are on the rise, maybe because people have been sitting around for eight months. At least that's what a survey from Lending Trees Insurance Comparison Resource, Value Penguin, says. According to its survey, one in five Americans have reportedly been injured while setting up their Christmas tree. Uh, this number is t- 122% higher than what Value Penguin reported last year. Now, of those who admitted they've received an injury from a Christmas tree, most were men. I'm going to refrain from commenting. A few things come to mind. And when it comes down to which generation has been hurt the most from a Christmas tree this year, it was largely the whippersnappers getting tree-related boo-boos. Well, 27% of Gen Z said that they had been injured following uh, by 24% of millennials. Only 5% of baby boomers reported experiencing the same, probably because they hardly do it much anymore. Well, interestingly, 24% of the survey respondents said they feel safer with an artificial tree versus 8% who said they feel safer with a real tree. Now, we have um, gone to a fake tree. I never thought that would be the case, but in our younger years, we would go out and cut down our own tree and haul it back and deal with the bugs and all of that. Uh, We were chased by um, animals in uh, Christmas tree farms. We're pretty done with that, so I enjoy... Just going to the garage, getting the tree, setting it up at our leisure, putting the ornaments on, it's done. How about you? Yeah, we've gone to the fake tree as well. I mean, and and now thanks to the the family habit of a few too many Hallmark ornaments, uh, we're now up to two trees. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that was one of the nice things and one of the selling points. My wife is very traditional and she likes to keep the tree up to Epiphany. And uh, yeah. The reality of it is I don't care how well you uh, water that tree, how well you take care of that tree. Come about the 2nd or 3rd of January, you know, it's 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 raining uh, pine needles in, in your place. And, you know, every a slight wind blows the wrong way in the room and the tree's half empty. Uh, so, I mean, it, <laughs> it, that thing dries out badly. And so, um, you know, it was a nice opportunity to say, hey, we can put this up the day after Thanksgiving and leave it up until Epiphany and not have to worry about anything instead of buying it as close to Christmas as we possibly could in hopes that it would last until Epiphany. So it yeah, really did missed... help help out. I mean, but yeah. I never hurt myself on the tree. Um, nope. I've dropped a couple ornaments over the years. I've had a couple fall on me or fall near me. But, uh, you know, then again, you know, with the younger people being amongst the ones that are having this happen to them, one can't help but wonder if they're not trying to recreate that scene from Elf. <laughs> Maybe so. That could be the case. Well, Morning Business Outlet um, Outlook says that Platters is announcing that their new iconic mascot has died by tweeting out a commercial of his death, Bill Abbott. The CEO of uh, Hallmark Channel's parent company, Crown Media Networks, is stepping down. Um, they grew up so fast. Well, Planter's mascot, who um, the brand killed off, angering Twitter, by the way, only to bring him back as a baby again, angering Twitter, and then reinventing him as a 21-year-old peanut junior, really angering Twitter, is now turning 50 somehow. A magical, frosty-esque, um, 
hat seems to be involved, just in case anyone is wondering. And in an even stranger turn of events, Twitter seems to be okay with the newest iteration of the long-running mascot. Meanwhile, the freshly turned 50-year-old named none other than Bartholomew Richard Fitzgerald Smythe, simply Bart, uh, isn't returning to Twitter to just um, celebrate his new age. It would seem that Bart is here to share news of Planter's new holiday merchandise line, which features ugly Christmas sweaters, ornaments, and other peanut presents for you to shell out for the legume lover in your life. Now, for those who lost track during this nutty year, Mr. Peanut was originally killed off by planters ahead of Super Bowl before being brought back as a baby nut. In the 11 months since, he's aged 50 years, meaning we can likely expect an octogenarian Mr. Peanut in probably like a week or week and a half. It's you were able to follow that. Yeah, two things get around. Isn't wasn't that a Robin Williams movie back in the nineties? Where just uh, he, he aged so fast that he was a senior citizen by the time he graduated high school or something like that. I feel like that was a movie. And the the other thing, of course, comes to mind is how like sitcoms and TV shows when they add a new baby for ratings purposes. As soon as that baby was anything less than cute, uh, suddenly over the uh, summer they would age five to ten years and uh, be starting their first day of school. It's very confusing. I'm very confused. Confusing. <laughs> we need to take a break, but we'll be back to continue taking a look uh, at some of the lighter side of the news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. We'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, we're going to hear our interview of the week with Jack Eason, The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. James Blend, my producer, has joined me for this uh, and the previous segment as we take a look at the lighter side of the news. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. Well, you may have wondered how the once subtle, joyful wool garment evolved into the ugly sweater sold in department stores today. Well, the ugly Christmas sweater has now joined the ranks of eggnog, fruitcake, and jingle bells, although I wouldn't put them all in the same category. Fruitcake belongs in a category all its own. Don't go, don't, don't go off on this too much. Somebody actually yeah. sent one. Actually, a couple people have sent them <laughs> over the years as you've gone off on fruitcakes. And yes, we're not we at the office very much these days. So, uh, yeah, that although it's probably would still be, quote unquote, good when we got back. <laughs> yes, probably. Well, the ugly sweater has become a staple, but it took several years before the public embraced this flashy pullover garment. A history of the ugly sweater. Um Little-known facts behind the curious designs known as um, sparking joy around the holidays. Well, the first Christmas sweater made an appearance in the 1950s, if you can believe that, with mass commercialization of Christmas. Uh, The precursor to the modern Christmas sweater was known as the Jingle Bell sweater, which came about in the 1940s and early 50s. Uh, The sweater at the time was colorful but considered tasteful and featured discreet Christmas-themed designs. But how did the once subtle, joyful wool garment evolve? Well, knitwear became popular in the 1970s as sewing technologies advanced. Um, Christmas sweaters were best suited to 
fit the trend. By the 1980s, the Christmas sweater was taking on uh, all new characteristics of the decade itself. Bigger, flashier, bolder. I mean, the hair was big. Why not have a sweater? Well, the style winded uh, down in the 90s, but was revived when TV character Mark Darcy was shamed in the 2001 film Bridget Jones' Diary for sporting a cringeworthy reindeer design. And, well, the rest is history. After that, ugly sweaters were embraced with a renewed popularity and slowly made their way to the list of tried and true Christmas traditions. Now, do you have an ugly sweater, James? Ugly Um, Christmas sweater? Yeah, I guess I do have one. Yeah, I do not have a single Christmas sweater to my name. I used to. I mean, it was something I used to wear, but... I I have trouble justifying... I mean, I've had one for a couple years, and I... I deliberately chose one that at least I would wear for a couple of years because I certainly wasn't going to wear it any other time but December. Uh, and I haven't broken it out this year at all because there's nowhere to wear it. Uh, but uh, that's the thing. I it just you, know, you see these sweaters and they're, oh, those, those, that's so cheesy. I'd love to wear it. And you realize <laughs> you're going to wear it twice a year for 60 to 80 bucks. And I'm like, no. Yeah, you wait till after the season, then buy the sweater, hold on to it to the following year, although it's a bit presumption. Exactly. Well, as 2020, a year that left many people feeling like things are, well, going down the toilet, finally nears its end. An Indiana sanitation company is flushing with praise as it looks to celebrate the holidays and the new year as only they can. Well, Service Sanitation of Gary, Indiana, used its portable toilets for an annual light show set to music with animated faces on the porta-potties that lip-sync to the songs. They call it the Jingle Johns, a lighted Lou experience. Well, the company said that its latest performance went number one this week, claiming it set a record for the most animated faces on a single holiday light display for its 32-toilet rendition of the Hallelujah Chorus. It shared a video of the performance online. Awesome! One commenter on the video wrote, great job, everyone. Well, Service Sanitation is also touring four of the porta-potties around uh, parts of Indiana and Illinois for a 20-minute live light show with several songs. The schedule is up on the company's website with stops uh, scheduled at church events, a drive-in movie, and a New Year's Eve fireworks celebration. Well, event organizers from the Indianapolis uh, area to Milwaukee may still be able to book a Jingle John's appearance. Service Sanitation also has a form uh, to request them on their website. So, you know, getting creative with what you've got to celebrate the season. Jingle John's porta-potties. A lighted Lou experience. Sounds like fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, while many Americans are feeling the winter blues this season, some places may be hit harder than others. Well, move.org, they have a team, and they analyzed um, weather conditions ranging from the temperature to cloud cover to find the gloomiest cities in the nation. Now, if they're only This doesn't sound good for us weather, in the Northwest. Yeah, this doesn't sound good. only talking about the weather, um, you know, we're, we're sure to be on the list. But here's the lineup. The number one, and this is according to Move. Dot org. Anchorage, Alaska is the gloomiest city in America at 65%. Second on that list, Portland, Oregon at 61%. But don't get too smug, Seattle. At number six with 55%, Seattle, Washington. 
I should mention at number three, Buffalo, New York, number four, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Cleveland, Ohio at number five, again, Seattle at six, Spokane, Washington at seven, Columbus, Ohio at eight, Fort Wayne, Indiana at nine, Toledo, Ohio at number 10. Wow. Anchorage, Alaska is the gloomiest city in the U.S., where 239 days of the year are under cloudy conditions. Three cities in the Pacific Northwest, I've mentioned them, made up the top 10 gloomiest cities. Portland ranked at number two, Seattle at six, Spokane at seventh. Luckily for residents, frequent overcast weather is a part of their charm. Yeah, we, we see that as part of our charm. Let's go with that. And then three Ohio cities, Cleveland, Columbus, and Toledo, topped the gloomiest cities report. Not a fan of gloom. The southwestern U.S. is home to the fewest gloomy cities in the country. We've got stuff. we got stuff here that makes it worth sitting through the gloomy days. We like the rain. We like the, the uh, cooler temperatures. At least that's what I keep telling myself. And it's green, lush, and beautiful. So we'll, um, we'll live with what we got. Would you agree, James? Oh no! Uh, what were those spots again that are uh, not absolutely <laughs> ungloomy? I, I'm, you know, I was out uh, yesterday. I, in fact, uh, had to uh, work from the station for the day, uh, which I get to do every couple of weeks. And uh, boy, it was gloomy over there. Uh, and uh, the, where where the station is located, uh, I re- lovingly refer to it as the Milwaukee Triangle because it always seems like weather is worse there than throughout the rest of the area. And they just found new and exciting ways of being gloomy in the, in that area yesterday. And, uh, yeah, that was that, it, I, I can tell you right now, it, get home and take a couple of vitamin D. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but I'd still take the Pacific Northwest over any other part of the country. So there. Well, there are some top trending dog names for 2020 that include coronavirus and pop culture themed monikers. One of the unexpected outcomes of the out, the ongoing coronavirus pandemic has been the uptick in pet adoptions, undoubtedly a silver lining to the current health crisis. I wonder what's going to happen to those pets, though, when everybody returns to work. But it seems as though these dogs and cats are still very much products of their time, as many new pet parents have chosen to mark the unusual year by awarding their furry friends with monikers referencing pop culture moments from the pandemic year or the pandemic itself. Now, according to Rover.com, 2020 top pet name report owners were quick to jump on pop culture trends by naming their pets uh, after carol baskin from the netflix um, docuseries tiger king mando from the mandalorian on disney plus and a variety of breeds like croissant rye and sandwich well oddly however sourdough didn't seem to be a popular name despite the amount of our quarantiners claim to have spent in their kitchens learning how to perfect the fussy bread. The unique naming choices continued with plays on the deadly coronavirus with Covey and Rona and expected Corona, all seeing large spikes in 2020. Covey saw the uh, largest increase with 1,159% growth, although Fauci was also a popular choice for pet names with the... uh, uh, with the dogs and cats across the fruited plain. Well, speaking of uh, these dogs and cats, we mentioned uh, earlier, I think last week, that emotional support animals will no longer be considered service animals on flights, uh, only dogs, and they have to be certified. So keep that in mind. 
Hey, we're out of time for this uh, this segment. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And in our next hour, we're going to hear from Jack Eason, The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, voters cast their ballots for president more than a month ago, but the votes that officially matter will be cast on Monday. That's when the Electoral College meets. The Constitution gives the electors the power to choose the president. And when all the votes are counted on Monday, President-elect Joe Biden is expected to have 306 electoral votes to Donald Trump's 232. But hold the phone. The Supreme Court is still um, left with a decision to make on lawsuit and the case brought by the state of Texas. Well, the spotlight on the process is even greater this year because Trump has refused to concede the election and continue to make allegations of fraud and unconstitutional actions on the part of uh, four states by the state of Texas. Now, that makes the meeting of the Electoral College another solid, undeniable step forward toward Inaugural Day on, Jan- on January the 20th, when Biden will be sworn in as president or not. Some questions and answers about the Electoral College. What exactly is it? Well, in drafting the Constitution, and we've talked about this before, America's foundings, they struggled, or founders, they struggled with how the new nation should choose its leaders and ultimately created the Electoral College system. Now, it was a compromise between electing the president by popular vote and having Congress choose the president. Under the Constitution, states get a number of electors equal to their total number of seats in Congress. Two senators, plus however many members uh, the state has in the House, With the exception of Maine and Nebraska, states award all their electoral college votes to the winner of the popular vote in their state. Uh, The electoral college has been the subject of some criticism for more than two centuries. One often repeated gripe is that the person who wins the popular vote can nonetheless lose the presidential election. That happened twice in the last two decades, in 2000 with the election of George W. Bush and in 2016 when Donald Trump lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton by nearly three million. Biden, for his part, won the popular vote and will end up with 306 electoral votes to Trump's 232 all things being equal, Trump was the fifth presidential candidate in American history to have lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College. Well, presidential electors typically are elected officials, political hopefuls, or longtime party loyalists, and they will be the ones casting those uh, ballots. And historically, that takes place on the 14th, and that, of course, will uh, be the case. Now, one question is, do electors have to vote for the candidate who won? Well, in 32 states and in the District of Columbia, laws require electors to vote for the popular uh, vote winner. The Supreme Court unanimously upheld this arrangement back in July, and electors almost always vote for the state winner anyway because they generally are devoted to their political party. Well, a bit of an exception happened in 2016 when 10 electors tried to vote for the other candidate. Those included people pledged to support Clinton who decided not to back her in a futile bid to get Republican electors to abandon Trump and choose someone else as the president. Well, that didn't happen. Once the election, uh, the electoral votes are cast, they are sent to Congress, where both the House will convene, uh, both houses, I should say, will convene on the 6th of January for a session presided over by Vice President Mike Pence. The envelopes for each state and the District of Columbia will be opened and the votes will be tallied. If um, at least one member of each House objects to writing in some electoral votes, the House and Senate meet separately to debate the issue. Both houses have to vote to sustain the objection for it to matter, and the Democrat-led House is unlikely to uh, to go along with any objections to vote for um, 
uh, to votes for Biden. Otherwise, the votes get counted as intended by the states. And then there's one more step, and that's inauguration on the 20th of January. A lot can happen between now and then, but given the history of the Supreme Court and the the um, unlikely fact that they rarely make a decision that's going to overturn an election, that's probably what's going to happen over the next several days, but only what the Supreme Court finally actually says will matter. Meanwhile, the Senate passed the National Defense Authorization Act on Friday, despite the president's threat to veto the legislation once it arrives at the, ha- at the White House. The House already passed the, uh, the legislation veto-proof. The Senate has done the same. The bill was approved by a veto-proof margin of 84 to 16. And on Tuesday, the House passed the, N- uh, the NDAA by a similar margin of over 80 percent of its members, with 140 Republicans joining 190 Democrats to approve the legislation. Legislation. Now, the White House threatened to veto the legislation unless lawmakers added uh, a legislation to repeal Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and removed a section that mandates the renaming of Army bases named after Confederate figures. Well, the NDAA has been approved annually for the last 59 years. And the current legislation allocates roughly $740 billion in defense spending. Senator Rand Paul delayed the bill's expected passage on Thursday, saying it doesn't give the president enough leeway to withdraw American troops from overseas deployment, saying that the president should have the prerogative to end a war, not just to start a war. Uh, That was his statement on Friday. Well, in a break with the uh, president, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell indicated earlier this week that the NDAA would be approved if the president vetoes the bill. Congress could shorten its Christmas break in order to uh, vote uh, on a potential override. And the numbers are there. Well, you've probably been hearing about the Portland Red House. Well, the real estate investor at the center of the controversy over the so-called Red House on Mississippi said he's overwhelmed by the aggressive demonstrations and occupation. And he's just a a party who ended up in this whole mess um, unwittingly. Anyway, uh, the occupation of the North Portland home, and uh, he's offered to sell the property back to the former owners at cost. Uh, The 33-year-old bought the house on North Mississippi Avenue through a foreclosure sale in 2018, unrelated to the family and the individuals involved, for $260,000 and has offered to sell it back to the Kinney family, which had owned uh, owned the house since the 1950s. We're a small family business. We don't seek to hurt anyone, of course, said the uh, uh, 33-year-old Roman, um, I think it's Osruga, the co-owner of Urban Housing Development. We're overwhelmed by the attention to this. We're already offering to sell the house back to the property owners at cost because, of course, we've paid taxes, legal fees, bank fees, and so on. So they've definitely lost money up to this point. He added that he's been in touch with the Portland uh, city mayor. Uh, the mayor has said that the uh, he hopes the negative uh, settlement um, will end the demonstrations at the site, which protesters have occupied since the summer in an attempt to block efforts to remove the family from the house. Well, the current owner said that he fears for his family's well-being. I myself am a father with little kids, he says. I don't have any um, uh, publicity team or even lawyers for this. I'm concerned for the safety, uh, for my safety, he said. To be honest, he moved to Portland from Ukraine when he was young. He and his older brother have bought and sold residential uh, real estate since 2005 when he was 18. Uh, They've acquired some of the properties through the foreclosure process. When a buyer falls behind on loans, the lender usually has the right to repossess the home and resell it uh, in a foreclosure sale. And that's what they had done in this case. 
Uh, widespread abuse of the foreclosure process by some of the biggest lenders in the uh, in the country became a hallmark of the Great Recession. You might recall back in 2008, and it spanned um, a time up until 2012. Even when uh, done properly in the painful process for the, the former homeowner who is uh, pushed out the door. Well, the longtime owners of the Red House on Mississippi have refused to leave. They've sued um, the company that owns it and a slew of other companies claiming the foreclosure violated their rights. The house has become a symbol of gentrification and racial inequity. And as for the governor, or rather the, the mayor, well, please, just the mayor, um, the homeowner said, or the current owners of the property said the mayor's staffs. Uh, reached out to him to explore some sort of compromise. I haven't spoken with the mayor myself, he says, but with his office, uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen. He added that the current impasse reflects issues broader than the single residence. Even after we give it back, and we offered that already, this issue won't go away. It's about mortgages and laws and law enforcement. That's certainly beyond the scope of what he and his family have done in flipping houses in the uh, in the community. So the saga continues and they refer to it as, you know, this is the fourth day that it's uh, gone on. Well, that's not the case. Uh, it's been occupied, if you will, uh, with protesters as well as the uh, former owners of the home for um, a month or more. And neighbors have uh, issued a number of complaints. It's made life very difficult for them. Uh, and there are weapons in the uh, among the occupiers of that uh, that property. So it's it's really become quite a serious issue. Law enforcement has been given the authority to do everything legal to remove this encampment, but thus far, little to nothing has been done. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Jack Eason, author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm also sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. Well, as promised, we're going to talk with my next guest, Jack Eason, in just a moment. But to, to speak of his book, The Loneliness Solution, despite our connected world, and we are connected to one another, perhaps now in ways uh, using technology that we never imagined, and partly because of that connection, we're lonelier than ever. Social media tricks us into thinking that we're engaged in genuine friendship, yet instead of intimacy, we get little more than what amounts to digital small talk. But there is a solution, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, in his book, The Loneliness Solution, Finding Meaningful Connection, in a Disconnected World, Executive Director of Crossover Cups Mission and a pastoral consultant, Jack Eason. He shares practical advice as he invites readers to discover the benefits of doing life together with other brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, that's what we're called to do. Grounding his message in scripture, he helps us learn about the obstacles to real community, how to reimagine what real friendship looks like, and to discover a place of belonging. Well, Jack Eason has been the executive director of Crossover Cups Mission for 30 years. He also consults with a variety of nonprofit ministries, helping them develop successful approaches to fundraising and development. Jack Eason, we are so delighted to have you with us. Welcome. Hey, Georgine. It's great to be with you today. Thank you so much. You know, I've been reading about loneliness prior to this pandemic, and the word epidemic was being applied, that there is a wave of loneliness uh, in our culture uh, that people are experiencing in ways that we've never seen before. The loneliness solution addresses that. Why are people so lonely today when we have uh, the opportunity to travel from one location to another in a matter of moments? We have access to technology that connects us in some ways. Why is it that we're so lonely? 
Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I mean, we can we can even communicate with people uh, on other planets, you know, with NASA yeah. and everything. They go to the moon and we can talk back and forth. Technology is amazing. Uh, but you're right. We are in an epidemic. And uh, we're, we were in one uh, with loneliness long before uh, the pandemic of COVID-19 came on the scene. Perhaps it's even more uh, highlighted and heightened and the spotlight is on loneliness now because of what we've been enduring the last eight months. But you know, I, I think we have really redefined to some degree now uh, what, for example, what friendship is. I mean, you know, uh, probably when you and I grew up, uh, I, I know when I grew up, there was not the technology that we have now. I actually had to go outside, uh, go physically <laughs> play with the, the kids down the street that I wanted to play with. Now we, we, we define friendship. Well, I can I can add or subtract friends with a mouse click right on social media. So we really have redefined what friendship is all about. And um, I think to overcome this loneliness issue, that's going to be one of the first steps is to help people understand uh, social media is not all bad. But it maybe has given us a false reality of what social, of what friendship is about. I mean, I have three thousand plus Facebook friends, but honestly, some of them I, I don't even know. And if if I had something <laughs> happen at two a.m. at my house and needed, uh, you know, had an emergency and needed help, maybe six of those would actually show up to help me. So you know, we've got to really get back to figuring out what real friendship is. Well, how do you define loneliness versus being alone? A lot of us right now are alone. Um, but loneliness is something different. Explain the distinction between the two. Yeah, I, I like to be uh, actually like to be alone. I, I don't know if you do, Georgine. I know you're with a lot of people and, and with your radio show. I'm with a lot of people at churches and different places and speaking. And and sometimes I'm just like, OK, I, I, I'm done. I have no more energy <laughs> for anyone else. I want to be alone. And so that's not a bad thing when we choose to be alone. But loneliness is different. I mean, you can be lonely and be in a group of people. Mm -hmm. It's this overwhelming feeling when I was doing some research and asking different questions of all age groups, but especially those who are like 18 to 30. Many of them would say, I'm lonely and I feel like I'm in a sea and I'm drowning or I'm, I'm trapped inside a cardboard box and I can't get out. It's this overwhelming feeling of not being able to connect, despite, again, as you mentioned earlier, all the ways that we might look and appear that we're connected. Um it's this feeling of just uh, really a lack of, of real, genuine friendship and connectivity. Is it because we misunderstand what real friendship and connectivity is or that there are so many distractions that we've settled for something other than the genuine, heartfelt, deep connections that we mm. are called to have and desperately need? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's both. I, I think our culture has kind of pushed us away from real connection. And again, uh, someone uh, said to me, maybe we have traded the false shrines of Twitter and Instagram for real friendship. And in some respects, I think they're right. Again, uh, social media is not all bad. We're surviving a lot of us with technology and social media mm -hmm. right now because of the pandemic. But it has created this false sense of what friendship is about. And, and I think, too, technology and just our society. Uh, I, I uh, A couple months ago, I left home. I, I went to get some food, dry cleaning, the bank, a couple other places. I never got out from behind the steering wheel. I was able to do that mm -hmm. all from the comfort of my car. And I got back home and I thought, you know, I miss walking into those establishments and maybe having a meaningful conversation because I'm so busy. And uh, technology has sped things up for us. And so we sometimes equate uh, the speediness of life with progress. <laughs> I'm really starting to ask myself, have we really, are we really making progress? Or are we going backwards? Because when it comes to building relationships, 
um, uh, you've heard this before, I'm sure, it, you, you spell love T-I-M-E, time. Yeah. And if, if we're all so busy that we have not left buffer of time and margin of time in our lives, then we're not going to build the kind of relationships that God intended for us to build. I know we are designed and built to be in relationship with others, and yet our culture today makes that uh, more of a challenge for us. What do you think some of the obstacles are that keep us from the kind of friendship that I think all of us, when we're honest, long for but seldom find? Well, I, I think, again, social media, I think busyness, I think something that I've seen just in the last year, especially, and, uh, you know, whether it's the pandemic or politics, uh, I think we have maybe even over the last decade in, in our attempt to give people validity, we have created these names of groups. Uh, and so we have actually divided ourselves and mm-hmm. we put the spotlight on what makes us different instead of what makes us similar. What makes us similar is we're created in the image of God. We are the human race. Um, and those differences are important. But I think we have put the spotlight so much on the differences. People feel like, well, I can't connect to that person. I have nothing in common with that person. And, and the reality is that that may somewhat be true, but it's the diversity, especially of the body of Christ, that makes us uh, be better together and stronger together is that the diversity. But if we don't highlight the fact that we do have things in common, I think that's uh, that is a great obstacle to friendship. Again, we've redefined friendship a lot um, uh, with culture and social media. Our busyness has, has pushed us away from real relationships. Here's the other thing I think, too, I, I've discovered, especially with the younger folks. Um, and, and again, all this ties together is a, a really a lack of wanting to invest what it takes Mm-hmm. to to really have real friendship community. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. He's in his mid-20s, and and um, he has been trying to find community and really a faith community. And uh, he said, you know, I, I just give up. I, I've been there, done that, kind of got the T-shirt. I don't need to do that anymore. And I said, well, have you have you really tried? Yeah, and, he, and he's maybe gone to a couple of different faith communities, churches. And I said, have you ever gone to a restaurant where you had bad service? And he said, well, of course, of course. I said, did you cease ever going out to eat again? And he's like, well, no, no, of course not. I said, well, that's kind of how it is building community. You you have to work at it. I mean, whether it's friendship, whether it's marriage, I'm getting ready to celebrate 24 years of marriage. And I can tell you, if you ask my wife, she would say, oh my goodness, talk about investment. Talk about time and trying over and over again to, to get through my thick skull. Sometimes. Uh, it takes time and effort. And it's amazing to me, really, especially that age group, and we're all guilty. I'm guilty of it, too. We're willing to invest when it comes to like to learning a musical instrument. We're learning. Uh, we're willing to invest if it comes to like getting in shape. We go to the gym. We work out. We're willing to invest learning a language or a skill or a hobby. But then we think friendship should just be instantaneous. And it's not. It requires work. It requires effort. And I think that is a big obstacle that me- mentally we have to overcome and realize those are some things we've got to do to have real uh, authentic relationships. We're talking this afternoon with Jack Eason. He's the author of The Loneliness Solution, the subtitle of the book. We'll get to that in our next segment, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. I'm Georgine Rice. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm also sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820 
the word. I'm continuing my conversation with Jack Eason. He's the author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. The book is published by Ravel. Now, let me ask you, what do we miss out on when we do not have the kind of connection that we're designed for? If we don't develop friendships, if we don't have one or two people that we truly connect with, what's um, what's at stake and what do we lose? Because I think some of us need to be convinced that there's something deeper available for us than what we currently have in our current cultural form. Well, that's, that is so good, Georgine, you're right. And, and I think we miss on ultimately the kind of connectivity uh, God wants for us that will help us grow. Um, because uh, as much as I want to think personally, I'm all that, and I have all the pieces of every personality trait and gift and skill that I need. I, I don't. I don't. And it's much like you know a sports team. There are different people who have different positions. The, the Bible says it this way, that we each have different gifts as a part of the body, and uh, that's the way God made us. I, I think it was actually intentional. <laughs> I think God did that so we would have to depend on one another. So this power of community is is really what's at stake. It's doing life with other people and uh, it's it's having your needs met. It's having people pray with you and and reach out to you and meet your needs. We, we had um, a Bible study group for about three years, Georgine, in our home. We just stopped a few uh, months ago and we'll start back up probably soon. But uh, we had a family in that group and they as we got to know them because they were plugged into community, uh, we just we found out that he had served in the military. He had been in Afghanistan. There's some biological chemical warfare things happen. He was really struggling because of that to hold down a job. And uh, we found out that they were about he and his wife, who was a homemaker. They had four kids. Uh, they were about to be evicted out of their home. And so uh, over a series of weeks, kind of behind the scenes, about about 20 of us, about 10 couples started taking up some money and they came the next Sunday evening. And and uh, before we got started, we just said one of the members of our group handed them this basket of, of cash and there was checks. And some people gave a little bit. Some people gave a lot. It was interesting how how people just did what they could do. But it all added together to make a big impact. And I'll never forget as he was handed this basket of cash, he started he started weeping and he just said, why, why are you guys doing this? And before me, Mr. Mr. Pastor guy could come up with a profound answer. Somebody in our group said, because that's what family does. Mm. That's what family does. And I thought, wow, that is exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think a lot of people are missing that kind of, you know, what the early church experienced in Acts, the, the family atmosphere, which is what the body of Christ is and should be for us. And so what's at stake? You're missing out on that if you're not plugged into that. People meeting your needs, you being able to meet someone else's needs, which is just as great as having your yes. own needs met, because it's more blessed to give than to receive. So that, that relationship, that back and forth relationship, you're missing that if you're not plugged into community. And you may say, oh, man, that's really that's really hard. It's difficult to find community. Yes, you're right. It is. But keep trying, because when you find it, you'll go, oh, my goodness, this is what I was wired for, made for, and how God is going to use it to help me grow, become the man or woman of God that I need to be. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the subtitle of your book is Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World. Give us some creative ideas to help build friendships in a society like ours that doesn't make it uh, the easiest thing to do. Yeah, I think, you know, especially during the, what we've been experiencing together uh, the last eight months as a, as a world, really, especially as a country, 
um, as well. There's some creative things that we can do. A, a lot of them are digital. Again, as I mentioned, social media and technology is not all bad. Uh, I, I think one that you can do uh, right now, a lot of people are looking to get outside because of some of the restrictions, um, is, is volunteering. We had, for example, in our area a few months ago, we had a, a storm come through, blew down some big trees uh, in, in a neighborhood. And we found out that it was a, an elderly woman's uh, home and uh, somebody put out a good use of social media. They put out on social media to this neighborhood association, a Facebook group. Hey, this has happened. This lady's got some trees down. Uh, she has to have a service People come in and clean it up. We're probably looking at a few thousand dollars, which she probably can't afford. Uh, if you got a chainsaw and you like to cut up wood, meet us down there Saturday morning at eight. So I go down. I get down there, Georgine. There's like 15, 16 guys with chainsaws. <laughs> Didn't know each other. A lot of them going crazy. Clean this yard up. And uh, and I'm looking around going, wow, this is the power of connectivity, of community. And uh, some of those folks are still getting together now after that, that, that met each other uh, with a chainsaw in their hand, helping someone they didn't, didn't even know. <laughs> yeah. So there's some creative things that we can do. It just requires us to, to open our eyes and look because God will provide those opportunities. And uh, volunteering, again, is a great way uh, to get out of the rut that you may find yourself in. Mm, that's so good. Hey, you... Um uh, point out, uh, you write that we need to be willing to invest. You used that word earlier as you were relating to your uh, your marriage. And by the way, happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> um, what does it look like? A real community and connection that we, we long for and that I believe God provides opportunity for, for all of us, if we're willing to make that investment as you describe it. Well, and, and that's the key word is investment. And we really have to be willing to do it. And, um, you know, the, the, the result, the, the fruit of that is just so good. Uh, and, and again, it's a God idea. I, when I was doing research for this book, um, I, I really wanted to write about the power of community and the power of being together. And then as I started researching, I'm like, well, we're, we're not even together. It looks like we're together, but we're not. And what I discovered and it was a quote from a guy. I think his name is Drew Hunter. And he said uh, the, the, the first problem for man was not uh, was not sin. And I'm thinking, OK. Georgine, I'm thinking, who's this heretic? I got to I got to find out who this guy is. How can he say that? But I started researching and he said, go back and read Genesis again. And you'll discover that the first problem was loneliness because God said to Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. So I'll create a companion for him. So this idea is from the very beginning of creation. And it's so important. And if you'll be willing to make an investment, I, I think what's happened with our culture as we have become, uh, and this is another, uh, not my idea, but another idea I came across, uh, we become so dismembered, so mm. dismembered. I, I, you know, I've got two kids in college and I'm paying for car insurance and there's this thing in the insurance policy, policy that says accidental death and dismemberment. And that's kind of what's happened as the body of Christ. We've become so dismembered. And so what I, I would encourage you to, especially if you know Christ, to remember Remember, rejoin the body of Christ because we won't be effective on our own. God made us dependent on one another, and uh, it is a God idea, and it's the way that we can best function to not only bring him glory, but to find our ultimate purpose for living is found in that kind of relationship. One of the things that keeps us from connecting meaningfully with others is the absence of trust. We're fearful of being known mm -hmm. and we're desperate to be known. Can you talk about uh, trust and how we can deal with that fear as we seek genuine community and friendship? Yeah, I, I was listening to an interview, uh, gosh, it's probably been five or six years ago, uh, 
from the guys who co-founded Airbnb. And I'm listening to them talk. And, and Georgie and I was just I was mesmerized because their first statement was, hey, we didn't start Airbnb to make money. So I'm thinking, OK, well, what's what, what did you why did you start this thing? <laughs> yeah. What were you thinking? Uh, <laughs> what were you thinking? And they said we started Airbnb because we wanted to build community. And we, we knew if we built a community that the money would follow, it would become a marketplace. But our heart was really to build community. But they said what the challenge was, was this idea of staying in strangers' homes, uh, you know, or condos or apartments or whatever was was very foreign to culture, much like uh, when Amazon got started and, and Uber and, and uh, you know, I've done Amazon. My wife especially has done Amazon a lot online, buying online and Uber <laughs> and all those things. Um, and so they said we knew that what we were talking about was different and new, too. So we were going to have to get people accustomed to it. And so they said, we put a lot of things in place to help people be, be comfortable and, and to build trust, to build this community. And so I'm listening. And then they made this statement. They said, if we just wanted to build a marketplace and make money, then money is the currency of, of transactions. But trust is the currency of interactions. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that wow. is so good. That's so good. They said, we don't want this just to be a transactional thing. We want it to be an interaction. And, and I think really for us, especially, again, in the body of Christ, we've got to get back to real genuine friendship comes from care and concern for people. And we sometimes let culture get us so busy. Again, no buff in our lives. We're running on to the next thing. You see somebody at church. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. You keep on walking. We both know neither one of them are fine. But we just keep plodding along and we've got to really um, have that caring concern. And when we do, then trust will follow. I, I know a lot of the millennials, Gen Z, you know, tell me, hey, we're really struggling with this whole trust thing because they're, hey, let's be honest, their trust has been breached. My trust has been breached by friends. My trust has even been breached. Oh, there I say it. Yes, it's true. By the church because we're flawed people. But just because our trust has been breached doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We get more intentional about finding the kind of community God wants us to have, and we might be a little more guarded. We, we, we try to operate smartly with our relationships, uh, and we plot on because, again, at the end of the day, this kind of community is what God uh, wants to use to help us grow and become uh, the kind of people he wants us to become. Absolutely. Well, once again, the book is titled The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. Very timely, very relevant. And I hope you'll pick it up, not just to um, consider how to navigate this pandemic, but to consider how to navigate in life with strong, deep connections and in community. Jack Eason, it's always a delight to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, Georgine, thank you. And, and I do want to encourage people, whether they get the book or not, there's tons of resources online to check out that can help you with your small group or your church group. And uh, let's all get the loneliness solution, which is the relationship that we need with Christ and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Thanks, Jack Eason. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back to wrap things up. Well, two of the largest planets in the solar system, that's Jupiter and Saturn, have fascinated astronomers for hundreds of years. But the two gas giants are going to do something next month. Well, actually this month. Uh, that's not been seen since the Middle Ages. They're going to look like a double planet. Well, the rare occurrence will happen after sunset on December 21st, the start of the winter solstice. Jupiter and Saturn are going to align in the sky this month as the Christmas star, if you will, with this rare occurrence. Uh, the alignment between these two planets, it's rather rare, 
occurring once every 20 years or so. But this conjunction is exceptionally rare because of how close the planets will appear to one another. That's according to an astronomer at Rice University, no relation, Patrick Hartigan, in a statement. He said, uh, you'd have to go all the way back to just before the dawn of March in 1226 to see a closer alignment between these two objects visible in the night sky. Well, between the 16th and the 25th of December, the two planets will be separated by less than a full moon, Hartigan says. And on the evening of um, closest approach on December 21st, they will look like a double planet separated uh, by only a fifth diameter of the full moon. Uh, For most telescope viewers, each planet and several of their uh, largest moons will be visible in the same field, the same field of view in the evening. So that's fascinating. Now, whether or not we'll be covered with clouds, you know, is a question that we always have to ask ourselves if we're trying to uh, see some anomaly in the sky. But back in 1614, German astronomer Johann Kepler, he suggested that a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn may have been what uh, is referred to as the Star of Bethlehem in the Nativity story, while others have suggested that the three wise men, or however many there were, could have been a triple conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and Venus. But it's unknown if the Christmas star was a real astronomical event, like a planetary conjunction or a comet. Well, this month's celestial event can be observed anywhere on Earth, but uh, the astronomer Hartigan, he noted that Uh, The furthest north someone is, the less time they have to catch a glimpse of it. NASA says the conjunction will appear um, spectacular uh, with a backyard telescope or even with the naked eye. So if you want to take advantage of the opportunity to see this anomaly right around Christmas, or at least when we celebrate Christmas, stargazers should try to see the event next uh, this month or risk waiting a long time for the next occurrence. The two planets won't be this close to each other again until the 15th of March, 2080. I don't know about you, but I'm not planning on being here. And sometime after the year 2400, Hartigan says, if the Lord tarries, my hope and prayer is that he will have um, come by then. But his timing is perfect. Well, Chuck Yeager, the Air Force pilot who became the first man in history to break the sound barrier, made his last takeoff on Monday, dying peacefully at the age of 97. Jaeger's name is recognized around the world that of a test pilot who chased the demon of speed and then exceeded the speed of sound in 1947. But if you dig a little deeper into uh, his life, you'll find a whole lot more to honor about this extraordinary man. So as many Americans did in the days following Pearl Harbor, Jaeger enlisted in the Army at 18. By the time he was 21, he was flying combat missions over Europe and a P-51 Mustang. Jaeger scored his first air-to-air victory by shooting down a um, Messerschmitt BF-109 fighter during the Allies' first daytime bombing mission in Berlin on March 4, 1944. The next day, while flying his eighth mission of the war, he suffered the same fate as and was shot down deep into Nazi territory. Miraculously, he evaded capture and during the next several weeks escaped over the uh, Pyrenees Mountains to Spain with the help of the French resistance. He returned to England and, after a conversation with General Dwight D. Eisenhower himself, received permission to return to the cockpit and to fly bomber escort missions in August. On the 12th of October, in an extraordinary demonstration of airmanship, he single-handedly shot down five Messerschmitt BF-109s. On the 27th of November, he downed four uh, four more um, Falk Wolf FW-190 fighters. And by the end of the war, he would be credited with destroying more than 11 aircraft in dogfights over Germany and received two silver stars, three distinguished flying crosses, and the Purple Heart. And he did it all 
before he became a household name. Well, after the war, Yeager graduated from the Air Force uh, Flight Performance School and was assigned to what is now Edwards Air Force Base as a test pilot after barrel aircraft uh, balked at another pilot's demand for $150,000 to attempt to break the sound barrier. It asked Yeager if he would be willing to make the attempt. So in 1947, August the four, or rather October the 14th, flying a Bell X-1, he did just that. At 45,000 feet above the Mojave Desert, Jaeger firewall, the throttle, accelerated to 700 miles an hour, or Mach 106, to become the first man to break the sound barrier. Well, over the next several years, he would go on to establish several more speed records, the last of which was December 12, 1953, when he reached Mach 2.44, almost two and a half times the speed of sound. As he uh, decelerated the Bell X-1A that morning, the aircraft began oscillating, went out of control, plummeted, at times tumbling over and over again for more than 50,000 feet. Incredibly, he recovered control of the aircraft and returned to Edwards. Uh, he had hands of gold, they said at the time. Well, Jaeger went on to command a flight squadron, the Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School, today's test pilot school, and several fighter wings. He flew 127 combat missions over Vietnam, and by the end of his career, he had logged more than 10,000 hours of flying time, flown some 361 fighter, bomber, and test aircraft, and attained the rank of Brigadier General. Well, like aviation legends, Eddie Rickenbacker, Charles Lindbogh, uh, uh, Lindbergh, rather, and Amelia Earhart before him. Chuck Yeager will be remembered by uh, uh, most of as a legend in the annals of aviation, but in every sense of the word, he was an American hero. Died 97 years old earlier this week. Well, speaking of living into your 90s, Lillian Rose, Lillian Yvonne Rose, my mother, is going to be celebrating her 90th birthday this Sunday. Her 90th birthday. It's also going to be the 26th or the 27th anniversary of our kidney exchange. Um, we had that surgery on her birthday some 20, I can't remember now if it's 26 or 27 years. It's one of the two. Uh, and she is going strong. I'm so proud of her. Um, she's a woman of great uh, strength of character. She's joyful and peaceful through through this pandemic and the isolation that it is required because of her vulnerability. She has chosen to be cheerful and um, set the example, as she always has, for my family. Now, one of the frustrations for me has been that I wanted to throw her a big blowout with extended family uh, from all over. We have hundreds of family members in this general area. We wanted to have a great big party for her. That's not going to be possible. So we're having, she doesn't know this, so don't tell her. We're having kind of a rolling birthday party where members of the immediate family are going to be coming in by family unit. They'll stay for a period of time. There's going to be cake and refreshments and gifts, and she'll have a time to spend with them before they move on. And another set of family members will come in, all socially distanced appropriately, because we don't want her 90th birthday to be the day she contracts COVID. But I just wanted to say happy birthday to my wonderful mother, who has set a tremendous example right up to her 90th year. She lives with Dan and I, and we're looking forward to many, many more years. We have a long-term plan that if she can no longer navigate in the apartment that we made for her in the lower part of our home, uh, we've made arrangements for her to move in a different area, and I will provide what she now provides for herself. Uh, but just uh, so happy to celebrate her 90th year. So happy birthday, Mama. Want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.